Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Seb Stafford-Bloor of TIFO Football. Manchester City trained at Millwall recently. Perhaps the no-one-likes-us-we-don't-care mentality rubbed off. After Newcastle were beaten impressively on Sunday, Pep Guardiola insisted everyone would prefer Liverpool to win the Premier League. We'll discuss that later. No one can deny, though, that it's Advantage City going into the final fortnight. They're at Wolves on Wednesday and West Ham on Sunday. Win those MIGs and a fourth title in five seasons is in the bag, isn't it? It does look very likely right now, just because it requires them to outright lose one game. And it just... like. I think, to be fair to City, what was particularly impressive about Sunday, leaving leaving aside was the fact it was a Newcastle who are safe and maybe certain not at their best on the day, but it was how committed and focused they were. After because I mean the the word the word from even after the first leg, let alone what happened in the second, was that City were emotionally exhausted by the Champions League, but they they did they showed impressive resilience, and in that it was actually quite similar to twenty nineteen where they get knocked out by Tottenham and then the, the very next weekend beat Tottenham 1-0 one, one and really kind of ground out a run-in win in that way. I mean, this wasn't quite as challenging as that game in the end, but there was a really, really impressive concentration from the start, basically kind of no messing around here. And, I, and the first goal, which I suppose ultimately sealed the game, even though it went to 5-0, spoke to that. Lovely ball across, great header Concello, and then the finish from Sterling. Yeah, speaking of Sterling, Seb, you know, two more goals there. You know, he's now being mentioned at City in the same breath as Aguero, which is uh, you know some achievement. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I've always felt there's certainly in the recent seasons there's almost a sense of impermanence around him. You know, people are saying, "Oh well, you know, he's got to look on. He might end up at Real Madrid or wherever." Is it is it a strange phenomenon that he's almost more valued, if you like? at England level that is he at club level yeah well, I think the whole topic of Raheem Sterling is an interesting one in terms of kind of the relationship he has with different supporters in at club level how Premier League supporters look at him and also you know his relationship over the years with England fans because that hasn't been a constant I mean yes Raheem Sterling national hero is currently where he's at post Euro 20 
well, Euro 2021, I suppose, rather than 2020. But uh, look back and he's had a very difficult time there. I wonder whether this is partly to do with his function in the Man City team because he's, of all the players that Pep Guardiola inherited, he's the one that became the most sort of, the most important component. And I, I use the word component deliberately because he is like, um, he reminds me of a little bit of, of the player that Pedro was for Guardiola at Man, uh, Barcelona in the sense that he's kind of an exclamation point. He's the guy that's always in the right position at the right time. He has turned into, he's turned into a kind of a reliable converter of chances, which is a, in itself an interesting phenomenon given where he was a couple of years ago and given the conversation around his finishing abilities. Yeah, it's a strange one. I, I Also, I think it's very, very difficult at, at club level. I think it's very difficult to separate Manchester City's achievements from what Manchester City are in terms of their resources and their power within the game and their ability to attract very um, very shiny players. I suppose Raheem Sterling has always just been part of that group and that's really unfair given the kind of the, the scale of his achievements. But yeah, it's, it's a classic taking for granted scenario, not by City fans themselves, Mike. It's just a sort of he's become part of the furniture, he's become part of that kind of steady beat of excellence over so many years that you just expect it to be there and you stop, you stop being surprised by it, I think, which is at England... Anything that goes well at England level is still a surprise to most of us, particularly if you're, <laughs> if you're in your 30s and 40s and 50s. Uh, if you've grown up with failure and all of a sudden you, you, you have a player that sort of turns up in critical moments and scores very, very important goals, that is a, not a very English quality <laughs> at national team level. So maybe there'd be the difference, I think. Well, I, I, think, yeah. I think there's an instructive point there about as well his place in the City team. And, and it does touch on kind of, or does reflect what City are, I suppose, in terms of, well, let's, let's be blunt about it, like the most lavishly funded sports project in history. But what that means for individual players is there's this constant sense that no matter how high-performing they are, and, and, and because of the way Guardiola coaches well, there's almost this slight sense that they're all sort of replaceable, maybe bar Kevin De Bruyne, but that everyone else, there's, a, there's just another player that can come into the team. And, and of course, that's been one of the senses we've kind of one of the discussions around the Grealish signing as well and how I mean I, I did I did I saw a little debate flare up on Twitter the other day about how if Grealish does win the title this season what would it actually mean would, would there be much of a sense of achievement uh, which is obviously harsh because I mean he's part of a, a title winning squad in that way but I think that maybe feeds into some of the 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 air around around Sterling while at City and it is interesting I think this is a discussion we were actually having in the press box at the Bernabeu on Wednesday about how about he says it's the legacy of someone like David Silva, where obviously he's he's one of City's greatest players, and I, I don't mean to say he's been kind of forgotten by the wider Premier League, but certainly it doesn't feel like his impact has lasted as long. And I think that does feel into just the same sort of thing that at City there's basically there's always going to be an expensive or at least another super talented player come along. So the it's quite conversely, despite the amount of money they're willing to pay in some of these players. It actually means the individual isn't as important. Because mm. to be specific about Grealish, uh, Seb, you know, he's something you know, he's going to be defined, isn't he, by the Gucci contract, which is mad when you think about it. And he always seems, and certainly looking at his his interactions with with supporters on social media, he seems to be a genuine lad. But is this all part of the pressure of of playing for a, a, a lavishly funded club? like City, is that you are judged on, a, on almost a different, a higher level, a higher plane. Yeah, well, I, I think this is another area in which what Miguel's just said is really relevant because it's not even just that 
clubs like City are always in the market for better. I think it's that clubs in like in City's position are in the market for newer, shinier, more exciting, interesting, or fundamentally just different. And so there's always something new to see in like a new attraction at the fairground kind of situation. Grealish, Grealish to me, I don't think Grealish's his season has been um, an overwhelming success. But what I will say is that it's a really good example of how slim the margins are in the game. In that if you look at that game at the Bernabeu, okay, well, um, one of the highlights of Grealish's season, you know, uh, save for a fabulous Fernandez clearance off the goal line, would have been right putting the final nail in the Real Madrid coffin in the Bernabeu. Oh, that's a pretty great return. I mean, that's a, a great moment to send your club to the Champions League final. Uh, at that point, it would have been a great performance at one of the away days of the season. And yet, because it doesn't go in, within, what, 35 minutes, it's become, wow, 100 million pounds. You're joking. And I know it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but this is kind of an example of how at risk a lot of players are from the, the pantomime of professional football and um, from the kind of the, the knee-jerk responses that it inspires. So I feel sorry for him. Also, I think, I, I don't know if this if this is supported by, you know, any proper anecdotal evidence, but it always feels to me like when you, when you have a player like that, okay, 100 million pounds for a civilian club is a ridiculous amount of money. At a club like City, or I suppose a, a Paris Saint-Germain, a Manchester United, in the future, possibly in Newcastle, you know, these kind of clubs, they can afford to spend that kind of money. And the first season is not a gimme because everything's still in play, but it's like, well, we haven't quite figured out what to do with this, this extravagant gift, this extravagant gift yet. And so you can almost be more forgiving. And yet, as much as we know that, that's just not the way the conversation goes. So you have these kind of these dueling forces of, right, well, 100 million pounds and, you know, you should be a, should be a Ballon d'Or winner immediately versus um, the usual rules of the transfer market, which are that, give a player 12, 18 months and then see where they are, see how they're gelling with the players around them. And, and there's no doubt that Grealish is a, Grealish, the investment in Grealish was a yes to diversify City's options, but you're also factoring in what he might be in concert with some of the players that might be arriving for next season. So for instance, if Erling Haaland does join Manchester City, then Grealish is part of a triangle which involves Haaland, yeah, but Kevin De Bruyne, Raheem Sterling is still in there, uh, Bernardo Silva, Phil Foden, Jack Grealish. I mean, goodness me, that is a, um, that's a that's an interesting cast. And then you can kind of expand his abilities out from there. But uh, the one game doesn't doesn't think like that, does it, unfortunately? No, no. Well, and, and also when you think about it, you know, this is almost counterintuitive to say it, Migs, but... You know, strange as it is, we're in the throes of a thrilling tight well, the, the thrilling right, race for honours right across the board. Yet, I don't know about you, but I'm, always, I'm, I'm almost looking at next season already in terms of, you know, as, as Seb said, you know, if we have Haaland, if, you know, United go and book a, a Tevez-style advertising hoarding and they bring in Paul Pogba... You know, that season, next season, is going to be the decisive one in determining the, the, almost securing the Guardiola legacy. Before, I mean, five and six, because I suppose at this point we are talking about, we're all expecting now four and five. I mean, five and six would be quite a statement of power. And it's a, it, would be, it would be amazing to kind of length, not least this season, or 2019, say the length level have gone. And to make that kind of one solitary dent in that spell. But then I suppose one of the great things about football, for all we've talked in the podcast, I think rightfully about, you know, disparity in the game, imbalances and all this. 
one of the great things about football, of course, is it does it does retain a core unpredictability, and sometimes the oh, yeah, these things don't go as people expect. Now, in that situation, they do spend. So we even say Pogba for and the wages, from what I understand, would be well over three hundred grand a week. I think closer to four hundred. Haaland then, like I mean, we're talking about they're basically buying their future because of his youth, because of his quality. It should be a guarantee, as close, close to a guarantee as you can get. Yeah, even even with Haaland say, I think there's been some little discussions I've noticed over the last while about how Guardiola would actually use him. I mean, the expectation would be that he'd just be the number nine to kind of finish all those cutbacks, some of them they tried in even that game against Real Madrid. But Guardiola doesn't always think think as... Uh, I mean, it's what, it's what makes him great. <laughs> uh, but he doesn't always th- think as kind of, I suppose, as uh, re- uh, as reductively or as in a, as rudimentary a manner as the rest of us. I mean, that's, that, and that's why he is one of the greatest managers of all time. And we're not. Mm. Yeah. One of the, I thought he went straight back into the usual playbook after the Newcastle game, Seb. You know, as I mentioned in the intro, you know, no one likes us, we don't care. You know, everyone in, in the country supports Liverpool. What's going through his head there? It's a cheap psychological trick, Mike, that every manager plays. In the last couple of weeks, I've heard Burnley fans saying that the whole world wants them relegated. Everton fans saying the same thing. Leeds fans saying much the same because of the resentment that that 70s Don Ruby team uh, still breeds. Also, remember that when Liverpool won their title, won their first title under Klopp in the Premier League, much of the discourse uh, ahead of that was about how, oh, no one wants it to happen because Liverpool fans will be unbearable when it does. Manchester City fans are taking umbrage with how excited commentators get with their, you know, the fourth of their five goals against Newcastle. It, it just happens. It's a way of galvanising your players. It's a way of kind of insulating them. And it's just a little cheap card that's been played over and over and over again. Um, I, th- I think, I mean, there are, I don't know, I can't speak for Guardiola, but I, I think there are people that believe this. But then I no, think... No, not, not least within City the club, which, I mean, I do yeah, think, I, I do this think, is it. I, I think Pep, has picked up a little bit of the kind of uh, the air around City as well, I must say. Sorry, but go on. No, I, th- I think you're right, Miguel. I, I just think it's it's just a, it's a very interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Because if you boil it down, we've talked so far, like the first 15 minutes about City's resources and what a lavishly funded sports product, uh, sports project they are. And I think this is true across the whole of sports. Like, you know, people root against the New York Yankees. They don't want the New England Patriots to win. They quite like it when the Australian cricket team falls on its arse. Like the, these are these are commonalities across sport, and it's what happens when you're very very good or when you have a fantastic advantage. It's just the nature of it, and also in British society with its famous fondness for underdogs, especially so. It doesn't have to be a belligerent energy. It is just what it is. It's a kind of, and I don't even think like I, I look. I, I'm not a Liverpool Man City fan. I, I'm not sure I really care who wins the title because it's not going to be my club, and it probably never will be. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I suppose there's a sort of like you know week to week, you, you find yourself leaning one way or the other. But you're talking about like single digit percentages, not like I, I'm not. You know, there there are no neutrals favourites anymore. Neither of these clubs in Newcastle United under Keegan. It's not the same thing whatsoever. And so it's, it becomes a sort of, it's it's almost a, it's it's a kind of a disingenuous position for me. It's like it ignores all the things that fans sometimes resent about these clubs, or or also how one-eyed a lot of club, fans are about their their own clubs. Like, if it's not my club, it's nobody. And I think that's a fairly common attitude in the game. Like these are. 
these aren't sports organizations anymore they're little churches and anything that happens outside of them is almost an irrelevance and i Miguel's right like there is an energy around City and there is a kind of confrontation between supporters and the media I I think we'd all be we can't really deny that but I don't know to me it's just it's one of those sort of hackneyed routines that managers go through but on the I I think there's something deeper here and distinctive to City connected to a lot of what you're saying but I do think it's not so much nobody likes us and we don't care it's actually nobody cares and we don't like it particularly Pep because ultimately because of because of what City are I don't think it moves people. Like yeah. I, I, people just don't really see the achievement in it. And I'm speaking. I'm speaking generally here, and certainly I think a discussion that's out there. One thing I've noticed as well is anytime City are up against a, a, a rival, there becomes this thing. People don't actually mind City winning the title now, because that's just something because because of this debate about whether it's much of achievement because of how much they've spent and what they are. That it's just seen as something that happens. So it's, it it hasn't it, it it doesn't inspire much great emotion. Whereas if City are up against say a Liverpool a Liverpool for for Manchester United or Everton fans or so many others, they they they'd rather even United fans would. I mean that's something I've seen over the past few weeks. Even United fans would rather City win the title than Liverpool for all sorts of angles. You know that this is the, they're obviously their 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 city their their rivals and neighbours in that regard, and and same applies applies almost across the league when it comes to this. And I do wonder with Guardiola himself, he's obviously put together what is pretty much like a, 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 an art exhibition as a, as a team, playing some amazing football. But because it's not Barcelona, because it's not Bayern Munich, and he has alluded to this himself in a lot of different discussions, it just doesn't inspire the same emotion people. And like, being blunt about it, when we, when we look, when we, in the media, when we do articles and all this, City articles, kind of general City articles, don't do that well. I mean, for, for all they're trying to change their global identity as a club, it takes a fair bit of time for that to permeate through. It probably takes up to 20, 30 years, especially given how hardwired a lot of support is for clubs like Liverpool, United, a lot, a lot of the true historic giants. And funny, the only time actually you really see the internet move as regards City is basically when they get knocked out of the Champions League. Yeah, I I do think it's and you know it's something that I've admitted to on 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 this show before. I, there is a you know, city don't register emotionally with neutrals. Yeah, you know, I I I admire the way they play, but does it move me? Does it actually you know pierce my heart? Well, probably not. And that's only being honest. You know, and that means if you're honest in in our our particular business, it means you're going to get absolute pelters next <laughs> couple of days with Liverpool. You know, there's there's going to be a lot of emotional stuff written probably today uh, before the uh, game at Villa on Tuesday. Seb, it's all going to be about you know the the Gerard factor. How relevant's that? Not at all. Not at all. I think it's relevant before kickoff, or I think it's relevant afterwards in terms of its effect on the game itself. It's kind of a sky sportism, isn't it? It's a nice vignette, it's a nice montage. And if something were to happen, then it becomes a kind of it it becomes half a day's worth of media fodder. In reality, I think Liverpool will run Villa over quite comfortably. But whether that's kind of whether that matters now with City in the form that they are, I don't know. It's an interesting one though, isn't it? Because it's like it's, it's almost like a media blind spot. We always do this, like whenever there's a kind of uh, oh, you know, you know, Frank Lampard going back to Chelsea. Is he gonna? You know, it doesn't matter. Like you know, ex players have been managing football clubs for as long as any of us can remember, and it's a it's a sidebar. That's the best, probably the best way to put it. And yeah, and also like times move on. Like I. 
I know what Steven Gerrard was and remains to Liverpool fans from an outsider's perspective. I know what he I have a fair grasp of what he meant, but it feels very different today. Like it, it feels, you know, how in the sort of the Rafa Benitez stage, like when when, um, when 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 football teams achieve things, when they like, so if you go back to kind of Shankly and Paisley and Fagan, like those teams are kind of isolated in time, aren't they? Like they belong to their era, they belong to you know their contemporary fans. And Gerald, to me, like you forget, this is quite a long time ago now. Like I know we all grew up with it, and it's it's it, he was a kind of Stephen Gerrard was a, a permanent fixture in the Liverpool team, in the Liverpool psyche. But it's a different time, and this is not like Stephen Gerrard retired in November, took his first job in manage in management in January, and is now about to derail their title bid. It's just not the same. It's just it's the way of things. Yeah, it's a distraction. But once the game starts, I think um, yeah, not so relevant. Yeah, Jurgen Klopp inevitably in the circumstances put a positive spin uh, on the Spurs draw. What did that result, do you think, tell us about the mental and physical state of that squad, Migs? The most instructive part for me was the last 20 minutes where, and I was quite surprised by this, I think this speaks maybe to the physical toll of the season rather than any kind of any questions about the mentality of this team, certainly this Liverpool team given what we've seen under Klopp. But they did, they reduced themselves basically to these kind of hit and hope crosses, which is unlike them. Now, maybe if Alexander Arnold or uh, Andy Robertson are closer to kind of say it's November rather than May and they're closer to 100% peak fitness or sharpness, should we say, then maybe those crosses are actually a massive virtue and they're swinging in and, you know, some, someone like Diaz or, or Jota is getting on the end of them and, and it's a relatively comfortable win. But I mean, it reminds me of a line that uh, that Ken Early had after uh, the Moyes' infamous draw with Fulham in that Manchester United <laughs> game, which is a team just thrown in claw- crosses is basically a football nervous breakdown. Now, I, I, I wouldn't quite go to that level with Liverpool, but there was just a kind of speculative desperation about it. And, and again, again it's, it is interesting also, for all of these two coaches have changed the game, influenced each other, in both their last two kind of big setbacks, which both revolve around the trophies they actually want most, City in the Champions League, Liverpool in the league, when it came right down to it, for all the high pressing, all the principles, they got it launched. <laughs> still yeah, yeah, yeah. still a, t- a timeless... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> mixer. What, yeah, get it in the mixer. But it, you see, you know, Seb, from, you know, from the perspective of a, of a Spurs fan, that would give me hope and certainly certainly provide confirmation of Conte's ability to set up a team. Yeah, it does. I mean, the one thing I say is that Tottenham match up quite well against Liverpool in terms of what they have at different in different parts of the pitch. Like, as a counter-attacking side, you know, the, the pace of Son, the playmaking ability of Kane, and the added threat of Kuliseski, like, it's a good... As, as far as it goes against Liverpool, it's pretty favourable. Um, and the results kind of bear that out over the years. I think what encouraged me was the resilience... I don't really have a problem with what Jurgen Klopp said after the game because he'd probably just seen the title go. He was disappointed. He was speaking in a second language and he's an emotional guy. It's kind of fair enough. Like, I know he's got this in his repertoire, but didn't have a problem with it. It would frustrate me too in the same position. I remember when um, 
Tottenham uh, drew against West Bromwich Albion in that season when they were chasing Leicester and it didn't feel particularly good to uh, to have points taken away by Tony Pulis. But that being said, you know, I think a lot of uh, Tottenham fans, myself included, were pretty fatalistic ahead of kickoff. I expected Spurs to be one down, you know, on, during the journey between the tunnel and the pitch because that seemingly always happens at Anfield. I thought they played with great heart. I thought they defended pretty well. I think there are a couple of moments in there which will really stick with me, like Christian Romero throwing himself at headers. Uh, Nick's talked about sort of shelling the penalty box with crosses. Yeah, sure. But like, if you look at sort of the way Tottenham have dealt with crosses over the course of the season, that's pretty good tactic sometimes. You know, Romero Romero is on this season as well, hasn't he? He's fabulous. Like, his development has been great. I think also there's there's a little bit of devilment to him, which I quite like in a player. I think I expect he'll be replaced at some point in the next couple of years. I think Ben Davis's transition to centre half. I know he's played there for his country, but I think he's had some great moments. That block on my Salah um, in the second half, like on his wrong foot, he's been he's been kind of twisted up a little bit, and yet he's still there, persistent. He's nagging in his heels. Fantastic tackle. These things warm my heart as a Spurs fan because I'm getting older, so I don't actually care that much about things like Champions League and where we finish. I care about how the team plays and its commitment and its ability to you know uh, to work for a result. And that's what you want to see. Like, I don't care the style. Just give me a point and um, give me something to be proud of. And and that was it. Like, I think the other long-term virtue of that kind of performance is it becomes a look at this moment. So you get into the summer and you think, hey, look what we can do against, to me, uh, Liverpool, uh, the best club side in Europe in the world at the moment. I don't think that's particularly contentious. Now, look what we did. We better side for most of it. Created the better chances, defended really well, threw a blanket over some of the best attacking players on the planet for long periods of that game. Hugo Lloris didn't really make that many saves. And if you give me a couple of players here and there that I can drop in, look what I might be able to do. I think that's the virtue of it. So it was great. It was um, forgetting like 1.3 points, Arsenal, Champions League, I don't care. It's just in the moment as a fan, that's exactly what you want to see. Go and be competitive. Don't go and fall in your own sword and don't go and punt a couple into your own net. And it was, it was, yeah, it was a real tonic, actually. I'm going to be a bit mischievous here, Migs, but I watched that game and I thought, Son, he'd be some player for Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Stop it, Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, it, but it's actually the interesting thing about it. And, I, and again, I'm not, I wouldn't, as, uh, as someone at Spurs once said to me, uh, I'm not trying to sell all their players. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but isn't it, one of the interesting things about Son is actually there's never been serious interest in him. I think the the the, the strongest ever went was Bayern Munich going a little bit, but not not in any kind of serious way. And I do wonder as well is that because of basically the kind of um, not the entourage around, but suppose like the kind of the the the, li- the lifestyle he's in there. Now, I, I do know he's a kind of a a commercial powerhouse in Korea, and there was the issue of his Twitter account the other day. But you don't exactly have a kind of a, an entourage around him constantly agitating for better profile or, or trying to kind of angle things. So he, he's always leveraged in a football sense and all, where it's always hung over a club that he might leave. And, it is, but it, and it's, it's remarkable. And of course, I suppose you, you only have to compare the, the interest and so on to the, or sorry, the, the, the lack of interest and so on to the immense interest in his, in his strike partner, Harry Kane. Where like you know, it feels like there's a sag every six months now at this point, and that's something that, and that's something that's going kind to of weighing over the summer as well. But uh, certainly, if there's one player Spurs don't have to worry about in that regard, it's Son. And yeah, he, he I mean, he would, and he wouldn't just be perfect for Liverpool. I think he's also he's one of those players who, a, a, a little bit like Luis Diaz in terms of impact, but not in terms of style. 
in that you could get you get the sense he could almost slot in anywhere and he would just he would perform. Mm. Yeah, I know no you think this is of of supreme irrelevance, uh, Seb, but the North London derby, we've got to talk about it anyway. Yeah, I have to think Spurs will win it. Even if they do, is fourth place beyond them? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I think you uh I think you saw with Arsenal's performance against Leeds, it's a little bit different when you've got something to lose. And I mean, some of this is going to depend on obviously, yes, what happens in the Fulham Derby Thursday night. That's that. I mean, it's supposed to have to win that. I think that's fair enough. I don't. I'm not sure I'd want to go to Newcastle at St James's Park in the current mood. I know they're a little bit on the beach away from home, Newcastle United, but it's different in front of those fans at the moment because they're free of my Ashley, and that's done amazing things to the atmosphere there. They're also a much better side than they were, so that's a complicated one. Now, if Everton needs something on the final day, I'm not sure I want to play them either. They're still a flawed team. They are, they're in the position they are for a good reason, but there are some pretty good players in that lineup. I mean, I'm not sure I want to play against Richarlison at the moment in his current form. Damari Gray is playing extremely well. Axel Wobey is playing, playing very well. So it's a little bit awkward for Arsenal. I think if the season were to finish today, I think Arsenal would deserve their fourth place. I think they've been, um, I think they've been great at different points. And I think if, if Mikel Arteta had been given... I know uh, Eddie Nketiah has played pretty well over the last couple of weeks, but if, if, if Arteta had been equipped with a forward that wasn't Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang for a few months, then they'd be over the hill already. And I think it's done a terrific job, actually. But yeah, it's never done until it's done. And, it, and if you're talking about teams like Arsenal and Tottenham, what, you trust them? Come on. Like, <laughs> you, 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 know, you know as well as I do that someone's going to do something stupid between now and the end of the season. Something silly will happen because that's the nature of these two teams. And that's the nature of any side that exists below probably the top two, you know. And also, let's let's be honest, Chelsea is still in the, this race as well. Like, I know they probably need just one more win to, to to seal Champions League football, but they've got to go to Leeds in the middle of the week. If they lose that, well, Arsenal could go ahead of them with, um, you know, the right set of results. So could Spurs eventually. It would take, you know, another two wins. They've got work to do, Chelsea. So this is kind of, to me, it's still a little bit of a three-horse race, although horse number one is a couple of furlongs ahead, I guess. But still, still in sight. So there are silly things on the horizon. This is what happens in London football, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what was the bit, the Breeders' Cup horse race in the States at the weekend where the winner came... Trying to eat was, his rivals. Yeah, I saw yeah that. it was like 16th or 17th <laughs> with about a couple of furlongs to go and it won it. Amazing. We talked a, a, against about Leeds there, Migs. You know, they're obviously right in it up to their necks. The impact of the uh, suspension of Luke Ayling won't be won't be beneficial, will it? If we look at their fixtures, as Seb mentioned, they're home to Chelsea Wednesday, Brighton follow at Ellen Road, and then they're away to Brentford on the final day of the season. Realistically, how many how many points do you think they need? I suppose the one benefit there is that they're all sort of they're very much either way games. Well, I mean, Brentford and Brighton have obviously been in, re- in quite resurgent form lately, but but yet their positions in the table means that's not necessarily a, a guarantee. Just by the, by the nature of the way it goes at this point of the season, and Chelsea, for all the reasons that Seb has discussed there, they're completely unreliable right now. So from that perspective, at least, I think they can go into all three games with hope. Uh, I would just be, I suppose, a little concerned. Like two weeks ago, we were actually talking about how Everton have the most to worry about from relegation because... They just look in a worse state than I. They don't seem to have the the even the heart or conviction of Burnley and and Leeds right now. Whereas that's completely flipped basically. And suddenly, certainly for that first half against Leeds against Arsenal yesterday, Leeds were dreadful. 
It, it was yeah, actually one of the worst displays I've seen, I've seen this season. Now, that did arrest itself as the game went on, although, as, as Seb spoke about there, I, I, I wonder how much of that it was just about the kind of the tension of the situation. You get a goal, Arsenal suddenly realises something in it. So it just changes the whole dynamic of the match. But it does feel as if the kind of uh, Marsh's initial effect after Bielsa and what he was doing differently has started to dissipate a bit. And they, they do need a real response. And in that, from that perspective, actually, Ellen Road needs to be... It needs to be like Goodison, basically. Because it feels like that that is something that's actually tangibly changed Everton's season around. Where Now, to be fair to Lampard, I'm, I wouldn't be Lampard's greatest admirer as a manager. <laughs> um, <laughs> but oh, you, you know, the, the, the way he's kind of... He, he just he set on a kind of a more resolute approach... Uh, for the for this run in, it's worked so far, and, and actually, I, I think that's been held because because of the kind of the defiant nature of it kind of fits the Everton crowd right now, and uh, Ellen Road really needs a little bit of that against Chelsea. I mean, maybe maybe yeah. the fact that Chelsea helps. Although, I, as um, yeah, as 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 Seb was talking about there, even Steven Gerrard, that's a kind of a rivalry I've wondered about. We haven't had it for so long, and it is it's like it's something really from kind of like a, almost a previous era of English football. But can, can is the Leeds Chelsea rivalry still as feral for a kind of a a lot of modern fans in that regard, or younger fans, should I say? And I suppose when or this this week's game will be uh, an illustration of that. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's it's a really strange thing to say actually, but like on Leeds, the thing that worries me, and Miguel touched on it there, like emotionally they look shot. Like you don't Arsenal's a difficult place to go, and I think Arsenal were rightly considered favourites for Sunday's game. But if you look at some of the some of the moments which led to that win for Arsenal, like Melier's mistake is unforgivable. Like at that point in the game, like you, you just you just can't do that. Ailing's tackle is I'm not sure I have the words for it. Like in terms of there, there's there's two parts of it because obviously one is you tackle like that, you are inviting referee to send you off. The second thing is a straight red card. There's this end of the season at this point in the season, you're done for the rest of the year. What are you thinking? Like if, if like you're a senior player and okay you might lose this game and if you were Jesse Marsh you'd probably you know on your fixture list this is probably one you cross out and think I just want a performance like the real the real money is going to be on Chelsea at home in a couple of days that's the one we've got to win and you think and you got a player like that that just that, that, that gets himself suspended for three games it's just like that's an emotional collapse because that's a kind of a, a complete lack of awareness of where you are what you need and, and what your situation is it's uh, it's very discouraging pretty alarming stuff if you're a Leeds fan I think yeah I think equally alarming if you're a Burnley fan okay Burnley are at Spurs on Sunday you know, relegation is likely to be absolutely calamitous uh, for the club given you know the very very strange and it seems to most outsiders quite one-sided uh, takeover if relegation is that ruinous Migs, is that also likely to be there be a knock-on effect in terms of influencing the type of manager that they might be able to uh, recruit, you know, to have the comeback? Oh yeah, completely. I mean, we're talking about a totally different complexion of club, and, and I suppose it's it's all the more relevant given this discussion that's been going on over the past few weeks about these the, these clubs in that kind of sphere where or almost a purgatory where. They're too good for the championship, but not good enough for the Premier League. And there's, of course, there's a, there's a big kind of financial debate about that because of the, because of the consequence of parachute payments. Whereas it feels like with, with Burn, I mean, a lot of those clubs are basically they've gone up to the Premier League and benefited from being in the Premier League 
which kind of gives them this kind of financial platform, which makes them too strong for the championship. Now, Burnley were initially like that under a previous regime, I suppose, basically after Deich's first promotion. When he went down, consolidated, came back up. Whereas it does feel like that would it'd be impossible in the, in, the, in the current situation and that we would be talking about just basically a Burnley for which almost, and at that, by that point, I mean, again, it's not, it, it, it doesn't feel any sort of exaggeration to say this, but one where there will have been no, after over half a decade, there will have been no end benefit to being in the Premier League. They won't, they won't they, they'll just be, they'll actually be in an almost worse state in that regard. Um, and of course, that, that does speak to bigger questions about ownership in English football and how clubs are run. That said, I, I have been, I think there's two sides to the Burnley story where, okay, it didn't work out on Saturday, but the reason there's still been a fighting chance is basically, I know this was an unpopular view, but it's basically because they sacked Sean Dyche. Because um, I, wrote, I wrote about this on Thursday. But basically, there was, apparently the atmosphere between the players, or a lot of the players and the staff, was bad for some time. And the players felt there was this sense um, that Deich and the staff gave up an air of, you're only in this division because of me. So from what I've been told, a motivating factor for Burnley in the last few games has basically been, we want to prove them wrong. But, uh, but that falls into a wider context for the club. And again, yeah, they're not just playing for survival this season. They're probably playing for the immediate f- or the, the medium-term future of Burnley as a possible Premier League club. Because there's going to be such a difference in outcome between staying up and going down, and not just for next season. Yeah, speaking to people around the championship, there is a, a you know a sort of an underlying feeling that people, you know, who think they might be in with a chance against the parachute clubs wouldn't mind Burnley going down, because if if a Leeds goes down, yeah. they think Leeds are going to bounce straight back up again. Everton, Seb, you mentioned the Goodison factor. They're at Watford on Wednesday. You know. In their current state, that is the perfect game for them, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the Goodison factor, obviously, is super important. Also, one of the things that I took away from their win at Leicester was just how loud the away fans were. They're great. Like, even even on the TV, the, the noise is just wonderful. Like, you, you can imagine how much difference it makes to uh, to a group of players. Okay, they were facing a team in Leicester who are... I mean, we could do an entire podcast on that because that's a mess. But, yeah, it's a perfect opponent because Watford are... I think the trouble with Watford and... It's kind of the the inverse of, of what we're talking about with Everton is that there is now no identity. There is a great acrimony among the fans. I read, uh, I read, I read an excellent Adam Leventhal piece, kind of a, an autopsy on what's gone wrong this season um, over on The Athletic, you know, and you're not surprised. When you read a piece like that and you read about kind of um, some of the issues that exist between players, coaches, uh, ownership, fans, and this is kind of the end result. And so Everton, with this strange, I, I suppose it's kind of a temporary kind of temporary union and a kind of a uh, sort of a temporary harmony brought on by the kind of the urgency of the situation that they're facing. Uh, you just imagine Everton will steamroll them. It's a weird one, isn't it, football? Because, you know, I remember being at Goodison Park for um, for another Everton game against Watford about a year ago. They were two down. Everton were absolutely dreadful. Uh, somehow managed to to find two goals from set pieces, then got Fabian Delft sent off and then somehow won the game. So uh, football's made an idiot out of most of us at, at different points. But yeah, Everton, you'd imagine Everton win that. I just, I know we're not kind of going to focus on them. I just think it's such a shame what happened to Watford this season. Bookridge Road is one of my favourite places to watch football. And, you know, like as a, as a journalist, I've had some some fun times watching games there. I just think what a wasted opportunity. Like, because it's just been nothing, hasn't it? Like, it's just been a... 
a collection of players. I'm not sure I could name Watford's first 11 this season off the top of my head. I'm a football writer and that's, I think maybe that's a little bit about me, but it's a little bit about Watford too. They haven't really stood for anything. You know, the kind of cycling through managers has become a little bit of a parody of itself. There's been no effect. The old kind of uh, way of thinking that you've described in a couple of your books, Mike, um, very, very well, um, seems entirely redundant now. Um, the thinking, not the books, obviously. Thank you. Thank you. Albert. Thank you. Available at all good bookstores and bad ones. It's just a shame. It's just a shame. It's just a mess and it needs a, a proper rethink. But yeah, uh, that should be Everton's game, I'm sure. Yeah, I, you know, when you think about feeling sad for someone or something, I, I, I looked at Roy Hodgson at, at Palace, you know, walking off, acknowledging the Palace fans, not even bothering with the Watford <laughs> fans, which tells you everything, doesn't it? You know, it's a terrible decision, a bad decision to come back. And it's, you know, no matter what you think about him as an England manager or a Liverpool manager or whatever, you know, his career deserved a better ending than that, didn't it, Migs? Yeah, well, I mean, that's all, it's always a risk in those situations, isn't it? And let's not forget, it's one last payday. They're not coming for nothing. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I suppose, the fact that the game was at Selhurst Park did afford him some, you know, benevolent send-off. But, uh, but yes, it's a messy situation. But then I suppose Watford, I mean, given the issues, are you still... You, you, you're not going to be surprised if we're, see, if we're seeing him back in a year's time having the same discussion but some other manager in two years' time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what about, um, you know, looking at the clubs who came up, Brentford obviously have done, you know, twice as good as, as, as Norwich and Watford in terms of points, nothing, let alone anything else. What about the job that uh, Thomas Frank has done there? I, I think, for me, it's manager of the season. And it, 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 I mean, I suppose it doesn't feel like it has a manager of the season scale just because there's been no element of real rescue. But that's actually what's so impressive. I mean, Brentford, because they're still, if you just look, you, you only have to walk around the place. You have to look to financial figures. They're basically, they're still a, cha- a mid-table championship club. So to be this comfortable in the Premier League is really remarkable. And, you know, it, it also it reflects on how well Frank himself fits into what is really progressive structure there and how well everything comes together and even I know a lot of people might point to say like the, the Christian Eriksen signing in, in January and how he kind of he saved them just when things were, were beginning to look a little ropey but that in itself is good management because I mean given everything it's not like I mean Eriksen is probably we're, we're still talking about really a Champions League player quite obviously but um, but there were very few willing to take take the decision Given you know the the awful circumstances of the last summer and his his usually uplifting uh, re- recovery and and it it speaks so well of Brentford that they were that, that they were willing to do that and I, I, and again just says so much about how the club is run right now uh, and so I think I think it's been an absolutely superb job and up up there with anyone. Yeah. Similarly, said what about the job that Graham Potter's done at, at Brighton? You know, when you think about it. That's a he's almost a post a poster boy for for patient team building. Now in the modern game, that's all very well and good. What are the limitations of that? Because if you're good at doing that, the bigger clubs come in and steal your players. I think the limitations are enforced by players. So I think the key with someone like Graham Potter is messaging and communication. 
And what you need it, you know, for, for that to be successful is receptiveness. So you might have a situation where, um, of course, the job that Graham Potter has done at Brighton will mean that he will be of interest to clubs higher up, you know, higher up the, um, the league table, higher up the food chain. The danger becomes if you move someone in there, eventually you come across egos and characters who start to, if not say things like, you know, well, what have you won? Or you're not as famous as I am. Or, well, this is how I've been doing this for the last five years of my career and it's worked just fine. Then they think it and then they have a certain resistance to it. But in his defense, I was I was watching the Man United game uh, over the weekend and <laughs> watching it in Germany with the German... Someone has to. Well, I was watching it with... Um, the German commentary on it and um, there was just a lot of chuckling from the German commentators actually on Sky <laughs> in a kind of sort of disbelieving way. Obviously, first thought was aren't Manchester United an absolute disgrace? Um, but the second was um, not just how well organised Brighton are and how good their football is, but how many of those individual players have improved and are better footballers. I think maybe one of the kind of the... Um, one of the, the kind of the main characters in that is someone like Trossard. Like Trossard, we, we, we spoke about Trossard a couple of couple of years ago on this podcast and, and just what a good player he can look at times. And now you look at him and you think, goodness me, like if you put him into a, um, I don't know, into a role at Manchester City and surrounded him with, you know, slightly better players, you get a you get a tune out of him. I'm not saying he'd be a world beater. I just mean that like, look at how he's developed, look how his consistency has been brought on. And you could say the same of someone like Casado and Mwepo. I know Mwepo didn't play at the weekend, but excellent player. Basuma has just become... If you remember Basuma's first season in England, you saw flashes of what he could become. Now he looks like a top four midfielder. And part of that's him. It's always part to, partly to do with the player and, and the way he kind of dedicates himself to his career. But also a great portion of that is due to the way he's been coached and managed Um and the way someone like Graham Potter, who didn't have a much of a track record in, in mainland Europe before he came to Brighton, has been able to kind of sell his ideas to his players. And that's a tremendously difficult thing to do. If you come from the backwaters, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, I just, I'm trying to think of the way a player would. The backwaters of European football, you know, yes, he beat Arsenal and all that stuff, but it's not Antonio Conte coming to Spurs, is it? And yet you come in with a fresh approach, new ideas, and you're able to sell a group of professional footballers who, generally speaking, some of the most cynical people on earth on a different approach. That is amazingly impressive. And I, I'm i so glad Graham Potter had that moment because I've got a couple of friends who are Brighton fans and they just were kind of overwhelmed by how great it was to have that moment. And yeah, it will be about Man United and the nonsense that goes on there. But it was kind of affirmation that's, uh, of everything that's taken place up until this point. It's just a great, great afternoon. Yeah, well, we're going to have to end with Manchester United, I'm afraid. Uh, with due apologies. Uh, we're going to have to wait until the last fixture at Palace on May the 22nd for, for the agony to end for all of us. So much has been said and written about their inadequacy on and off the pitch. I suppose, can we just end, you know, relatively briefly, chaps, what one thing would give you hope that improvement is possible, you know, in the medium term at least. What one thing are you looking for uh, in the new regime? Uh, I mean, for stop me, with you, please, Mix. For, for me, I suppose it's basically that while I do think Pochettino would have been a better fit for the current situation than Ten Hag is, I mean, it, it's just it, pointing to Ten Hag is still a positive step because basically, for arguably the first time since. I might even say since Ferguson retired, this this squad or this club is going to get proper 
progressive coaching close to the cutting edge of the game. I mean, Moy is obviously never fit for United. Van Gaal, um, obviously been a, a legend, but was was probably past his day by then. His, his biggest achievement in, in the years immediately before United was with international football, which is about a decade behind the club game. Mourinho, at that point, he just shouldn't have taken the job, uh, given what happened to Chelsea. Given the, and given, and given, I mean, it, well, I think what was so pronounced about Mourinho's time was how how quickly it had been shown that he'd fallen behind best practice. Solskjaer never up to it. Whereas now we have uh, a, a proper coach coming in. So that, I, think, I think just from that basis alone, it should at least restore United to top four. Because, I mean, I mean the, 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 the squad is still good. I know people go on about how, you know, one of the main criticisms from United fans, not understa- or not, understandably, given how bad it's got, but, you know, they want to throw all the players out. But the, the thing about that sort of situation is players can look completely different in the right coaching context. It's, that, that shouldn't be forgotten. And so I think that, that, that may be the main cause for hope, basically. We're about to see just a fundamental change in how this Manchester United team train. Yeah. Seb? Yeah, I still have some questions about the recruiting model and their recruiting practices. I still don't kind of understand who makes these decisions. Um, there's a little bit of a muddle at the top of the tree. There's also quite a lot of football intelligence leaving the club at the moment, and that should always make you nervous. So a bit of clarity there would not hurt i don't think and i agree wholeheartedly with miguel like proper coaching the only fear i have there is uh ten hag is an intense guy he's a details orientated guy if there isn't it's kind of what we said before but if there isn't you know the right level of receptiveness amongst the playing staff that's going to be a very very difficult first few months if it doesn't go well immediately yeah i'm full of optimism ten hag's a super coach but um yeah questions about how he might be received yeah, I think I'm probably in the militant tendency here. I think I'll start by basically stating the obvious, that, that football's about footballers, you know, players of the requisite talent and character. There is talent in that United squad, obviously, but it's been pretty difficult to identify like, lately. Yet for character, you know, let's be honest, collectively it stinks. I think the dressing room at Old Trafford needs to be fumigated. I take what Miggs has just said there but you do need to shift bodies to actually create a new culture I, I, I suspect that's true yeah yeah. you know and, and that'll probably take longer than people think what do you think United fans uh, please let us know in the meantime thanks to Miguel and Seb for their insights and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.